Hello, and welcome to Inside Policy Talks, the premier video podcast of the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, Ottawa's most influential public policy think tank. At the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, we harness the power of Canada's brightest minds to tackle Canada's greatest challenges. Learn more at macdonaldlaurier.ca. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Jonathan Berkshire Miller. Uh, I'm Director of Foreign Affairs, National Security and, and National Defense here at the Macdonald Laurie Institute. Um, and it's a, it's a great pleasure to have, uh, have Dr. Casey Babb here uh, joining us on our program. Uh, Casey just recently wrote a great policy brief here for the Macdonald Laurie Institute uh, on uh, some of the challenges currently in the Middle East and, and in particular on uh, UNRWA. So uh, before I give it over to you, Casey, um, you know, at MLI, we don't do very long biographies, but you have a, have a distinguished background. And I'll just mention a few of your, your affiliations. Uh, you're now a fellow with the Institute for National Security Studies uh, in Tel Aviv, uh, and also uh, with the Royal United Services Institute in London, RUSI, uh, which is an outfit that, uh, that is a great outfit and I've had several good collaborations with. Um, Casey also teaches uh, terrorism and international security at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs uh, here in Ottawa and is a contributor uh, at the McDonald Laurie Institute. So Casey, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, pleasure to be here. Great. Uh, well, let's try to dive straight into it. And I, I want to start uh, with, uh, with your recent piece. Um, and I think a lot of Canadians are obviously grappling with the, the situation currently in the Middle East and trying to understand and, and filter through some of the um, uh, some of the disinformation, some of the poor information that we're finding in some of our different uh, media sources, and also looking at, uh, at what's really happening on the ground. I think your piece does a really good job of, of outlining some of this. So I wonder if you can just start off with, uh, with a little bit of a summary of your piece, and more importantly, uh, what is UNRWA and, and why should Canadians care about this? Right. Um, so all good questions. I mean, um, uh, the Coles Notes version is essentially that uh, this organization uh, is the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for for Palestine, and it was uh, it's a UN, of course, uh, run and led organization that was established um, after uh, shortly after World War II um, and uh, very shortly after the uh, and really in response to um, the uh, War of Independence uh, in Israel, and it was set up as a um as a mechanism as a as a body to help um resettle uh, arab refugees in the region who have since um come to be known as palestinians um and uh it, they really had the same marching orders uh, and and um uh, objectives as they had um in other instances throughout the world to to resettle refugees and to um, implement sort of workers programs to ensure that they had the social and economic um, opportunities needed for them to successfully resettle in in um, host nations that they had been uh, uh, displaced to in one way or another and when i say displaced i mean that that can be forcible displacement it can be uh, uh, choosing to leave on their their own will um, there's a variety of reasons and and pathways to displacement that have uh, affected um, Arabs in that in that part of the world, but that's essentially what the organization is. And um, as I argued in the piece, Jonathan is, you know, it was a 
um, noble organization with a with a clear cause, a, um, a justifiable cause, um, 75 or so years ago. And in the time since, it has really morphed into something um, um, far beyond that, that has really in a variety of ways made the, the situation um, much worse for, for uh, Palestinians and Israelis alike. Well, thanks. I think that's a great overview. And I think, uh, you know, a challenge that many Canadians find, uh, whether it's with their Middle East policy or more broadly, as they conduct uh, their foreign policy, as I think their their expectations and their perceptions on one hand of, of what many uh, multilateral agencies are intended to do. And as you said, I think uh, start off with a noble intention, noble cause, uh, but then whether it's the sort of machinations of some of the states that uh, decide to have different objectives and different interests and, and push these agencies into different um, frameworks. I think it's it's important to to inform Canadians that that not all multilateral bodies are created equal, um, and some of them have been twisted in different ways. Um, so I guess a question for you, and specifically sticking right now to the to the multilateral realm, um, what would be some of the alternatives that you would suggest uh, if we were to disband UNRWA? Um, you know, is there a, a you know mechanism within the United Nations that would be successful or would it fall into the same pitfalls that we've seen UNRWA fall into? Are there other sort of multilateral approaches that we could, uh, or agencies or bodies or NGOs uh, that we could think about that would, would better deserve uh, our funding and political attention uh, than this agency? Well, I think, you know, there's a few things, if I can just back up a little bit, a few things to note um, and to help people sort of contextualize the, the, um, the, the heart of the matter here. And that is that UNWA hasn't been able to um, achieve the mission that they set out to do. And that mission was um, outlined for them and, and um, created for them, you know, three quarters of a century ago. And they haven't been able to do that. Um, and that is resettle the refugees. And for a variety of reasons, um, it has been not just ineffective, but it has made the situation much worse and likely intentionally worse. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, at, in 1947, 48, 49, in and around that, that time frame, there were about 750,000 um, uh, Arab refugees. Now there are several million. And that is because unlike any other um, refugee group in history, uh, to the best of my knowledge, um, what has happened here is that all of the descendants of those original refugees now get to claim refugee status. And not only does that include um, sort of immediate family members, it's their family members and their family members and their family members. And so what I mean by that is, if you're born in Toronto, um, but your grandparents, or maybe in the future, your grandparents' grandparents were displaced in 1948, you then can consider yourself, and we see this all the time, a Palestinian refugee. Even if you adopt children, they are considered Palestinian refugees. And so there's no sort of easy way to, to, to say this or to um, um, approach this, but it would appear as though there's been a concerted effort over the last 75 years to 
not not only increase the amount of refugees that there are, thereby making the situation a larger situation than it was in the first place, you enable refugees to maintain a forever status of being a refugee. And when you do that, well, what are you doing? You're signaling to them that one day you, you will get to no longer be a refugee. And that will happen by what? Well, uh, getting a do-over probably of the war that you lost in 1948 and the successive wars that you lost since 1967 and 1973. And so this is a, just a roundabout way because I just wanted to come back to that, that this is if you allow a group of individuals to and their families and their families and generation after generation to maintain refugee status, I mean, you're signaling to them that there's there's going to be a pathway to you no longer being a refugee. And but that's you have to look back for that. And we're gonna you don't you don't need to look forward. You get to maintain your refugee status. Um and so to your question, are there alternatives here? Well, I mean the bottom line up front is that th this agency isn't working. They haven't achieved anything. If anyone can come to me and say, here's what they've achieved, here's who they've helped, um, and this is what they've done for Palestinians and Israelis in terms of improving the situation there, let me know, because I don't know what they've done. And now, of course, they are responsible for you know the educational programs in the Palestinian territories, but what do those education programs look like? I mean, the individuals who carried out this massacre on uh, on October seventh, you know, many of them were graduates of uh, UNRWA um, um, educational programs. So, in terms of alternatives, I mean, it's important to note that the Palestinians have their own agency within the UN, and every other refugee group on planet Earth is lumped into another. Um, um, stream of refugee support under the United Nations. So um, there's something there that's that's um, uh, off the mark and something that's not working and hasn't worked in a long time. I don't know what those alternatives would be, but I think what we need to do is, is you know, unfortunately stop infantilizing a group of people and pull the Band-Aid off and figure out a different way towards uh, fixing this situation because, you know, the way that it's been going isn't, hasn't helped anybody. Well, I think that's a very clear, uh, clear point and clear description, which is really helpful. Um, and it sort of leads me to pivot to my next sort of question and, uh, and point of discussion, which particularly on for Canadian policy. So I think, as you mentioned in your piece, Canada has now suspended payments, but uh, to UNRWA. Uh, but as you suspect, and I think probably many of us suspect, those payments eventually will come back online uh, with some of the allies who have, who have also suspended their payments. So I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. First, what's the lay of the land of, of some of Canada's main allies on how they're approaching issues? I think you did highlight that a little bit in your piece, but it'd be nice to talk about that. And second, what should be the policy for Canada going forward, particularly on this issue, but more broadly as it approaches this uh, uh, the fallout of, of Hamas's brutal terrorist attack um, last October? Right. I mean, so to your first question, um, if I if I heard you right, Jonathan, I mean, um, numerous other allies, uh, uh, Canada's allies have also 
you can call it pulled funding, or I, I think of it as pausing temporarily, putting a pause on, on funding. Um, uh, and so I think, as I've said before, this whole region, this whole situation is um, politically volatile. And politicians want more than anything else to um, uh, preserve their positions um, and to um, make as few people as possible um, upset, uh, as few voters as possible upset with their policies. They want to get reelected. This government wants to get reelected. And so op what often happens, and it, this is akin to, you know, the situation itself in terms of UNRWA and in terms of not taking action on it, that's really been the approach of most governments over the last 70 years, um, with the exception of, of course, you know, attempts to reach peace settlements. But by and large, politicians, governments, they don't want to touch this because it's, it's too volatile. So what they do is they try to exercise some degree of uh, political neutrality rather than being right. Um, they would rather be somewhere in the middle, which is co completely wrong and ineffective, than bother uh, certain groups or ruffle the feathers of certain groups. And so it just prolongs the situation. So, I mean, that's been the, the case of Canada, um, even with the, the, uh, the uh, outrageous case of genocide that was brought before the Hague um, in terms of, you know, between South Africa and Israel. Canada's approach on that, the government's approach on that and, and their language was not only just abysmal, it was confusing. People are saying, well, what, what is your, what are you saying? What does that even mean? What side are you on? And their position really is we're, we're not on anybody's side. We're just, you know, we're along for the ride. And so I think when other people unpause or unfreeze their funding here, Canada will, will do the same thing. And they'll probably be at the, at the front of the pack to do that um, just because they see it as a, um, a way to, um, uh, you know, sort of validate their, their ideological positions. And um, uh, it's a safe move. So that's likely what they'll do. I mean, uh, I don't think that this, this funding will be frozen for too, too long. And it's, you know, that's our money. Those are our taxpayer dollars. But, I, you know, I don't know how many people really care about that. If they care that their taxpayer dollars are used in pay for slay programs uh, in the Palestinian territories, if their taxpayer dollars uh, end up in the hands of Hamas uh, so they can build tunnels. Um, many of those tunnels use child labor. I don't care if they, I, I don't know if they care that their taxpayer dollars are used to um, uh, radicalize generation after generation of Palestinians in the classroom. I mean, they might just care mostly about, you know, the cost of living here in Canada, the price of gas, the, the cost of groceries, and so on and so forth. But Canadians need to realize that your tax dollars are going towards this and they're going towards the, you know, they're fine. Your money is finding its way into the pockets of the leaders of Hamas. So um, alternatives, well, I, I don't know what the alternatives are, but it, it's not working. And um, I would expect the taps to be turned back on any, any time now, um, uh, particularly with Israel sort of uh, moving towards uh, an, an operation of sorts, the next phase of their campaign in Rafa. Um, you know, everybody's going to be, um, their attention will be drawn towards what's inevitably going to be a, 
um, a serious humanitarian issue there. And that will only lead to further calls to, to, to get the money um, flowing again. Well, I think that's a really good uh, point. And uh, I think your, your point on the ICJ uh, ambiguity or wavering or dithering, I think is, uh, is a really good one. Uh, and it strikes me as an episode that's not unique just to the Middle East. I think it's been more symbolic, frankly, of, of Canada's foreign policy for several years, but I think it's been particularly acute in the past uh, 10 years. And it, it goes like this, uh, that Canada can be friends to all, all people on all issues uh, that we, you know, that we can share interests with, with, with everyone and, and we can just sort of take this neutral party status. But I think, as you know, we know, and I think as many Canadians know, we share certain interests, defined interests, uh, even though we don't articulate them. We have certain value sets that we share with allies and partners. Uh, and I think it's about time that we start very seriously thinking about uh, what's, which institutions and which partners uh, share those and, and how we can promote them. So I think this is a clear example of this where Canada wants to come out in foreign policy terms as not upsetting anyone, not upsetting any apple carts. Um, but uh, in the end of the day, they end up upsetting everyone uh, because they don't clearly define their position. Um, so I want to use that as a hinge to my, my last point, and I think it's a, it's a bigger strategic point. But with everything we're talking about today, with UNRWA, with, um, with obviously the fallout of what happened last October, I think it's more symbolic of the bigger question of Canada's strategic interests globally but in particular, to zoom in a bit on the Middle East, um, we've seen developments shifting. I mean, this region is dynamic and evolving as many parts of the world are. Um, it has been shifting for years before uh, the brutal attack uh, last October. Uh, do you feel uh, as many, uh, as you know, personally I do and many of my colleagues do, that Canada has been very slow to adapt to the realities of, of what's shifting in the Middle East, whether it's the Abraham Accords, uh, whether it's some of the, uh, the the different perspectives and challenges that are happening right now. Do you feel that Canada is behind on this? And if so, uh, what are some steps that Canada should take uh, to to you know chart out a more pragmatic, realistic strategy in this part of the world? Yeah, I mean, you, you raise a number of great points, Jonathan. Th this government has not, I'm not sure anybody knows really what their foreign policy objectives are. Um, and in the Middle East, it's become clear that they this is beyond their their grasp, beyond their understanding. Um, they're really nowhere to be found, and I think this is, you know, reflected in multilateral efforts um, and, and political high level political conversations that aren't including Canada. And we see this in the Middle East, but we see this with other sort of um, um, theaters as well. Um, you know, I, and frankly, I, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't hold my breath that this government's really going to be able to turn anything around. I think they are probably seized with other issues. And as you noted, they're trying to, um, they try to make everybody happy on every issue. And by doing that, they make very few people happy. I, you know, I think like other governments, though, they need to come to terms with several things when it comes to the Middle East. And this isn't just, um, you know, I, I feel like when people say, use the phrase peace in the Middle East, they're really talking about Israel, but, you know, sort of geopolitical issues, um, humanitarian crises, um, volatile areas, um, corruption. There are so many issues that go far beyond Israel. I mean, whether it's in Saudi Arabia or Iran or Yemen or Iraq or Syria, but there's, you know, so they need to find a way to, um, insert themselves in a 
substantive manner to um, help move the needle in areas which we could, you know, which fall into our strengths in the, when it comes to Israel and, and um, you know, uh, issues between Israelis and Palestinians, they need to get real. Um, they need to realize that whatever they've been doing hasn't been working. Um, that trying to appease both sides equally isn't working. Um, I think they need to probably, and to go back to what we were originally talking about, UNRWA, they need to cease funding for that permanently uh, and use those tens of millions of dollars uh, in another way to improve the situation and to improve the lives of Palestinians, which they deserve. You know, n none of what I'm saying um, negates the fact that there are you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people living in Gaza and the West Bank that deserve a, uh, a better future. But this government can't continue to infantilize a people uh, and at the same time not hold certain groups of people accountable at all, while also signaling that those same groups of people have what it takes to have their own country and have their own military. How can a group of people that have the world has never demanded any accountability of them be expected to govern themselves, be expected to um, um, act responsibly in, in, in any substantive way in the region. I don't understand what, what the approach of, of this government and other governments is when it comes to foreign policy in the Middle East, specifically between Israel and the Palestinians. Um, and the other, the other, uh, dynamic here is that a lot of these issues and really at the heart of, of what we're talking about here, they are, they're uncomfortable. So people would rather not talk about them. People would rather not talk about the fact that, um, you really need to de-radicalize, uh, a generation or generations of Palestinians who don't believe that they can have uh, a peaceful coexistence next to a Jewish state. We need to start talking about these things. Um, we talk in such a way that we just assume that they are going to embrace our our plans that we push on them and that everything will be better if we just pursue a two-state solution. No one's, very few people in this government and most other governments are talking about the fact that there's no, there's no real interest in a two-state solution, in my, in my opinion. I mean, uh, look at the data. Look at the polls that have come out that have been carried out in the West Bank since October 7th. There are a lot of people, a lot of people in the West Bank and Gaza who want their own state, but they want their state instead of a Jewish state. They don't want to be next to a Jewish state. And that is part of the issue. And so um, we can't keep trying to have our cake and eat it too. It's It's not working. And I think somebody, some government, some you know group of politics, they're going to have to stand up and be the ones to to um, um, take a, a more realistic stance on these things because we just keep dancing around the same issue decade after decade, and it's not working. Um, so, I mean, to 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 circle back to your questions, I think they need to really um, wake up to the realities on the ground. They need to strengthen their expertise and their understanding of the Middle East. Um, and they need to start having conversations with, with the right people. And that's something that I don't think they've been doing for a very long time. 
Well, thanks very much, Casey. I think we're going to unfortunately have to leave it there for today, but I know that this discussion is going to keep going on. Uh, again, we really appreciate your contribution, and I know that we're going to have you back uh, for, for round two and, and perhaps round three on this discussion. Um, uh, Dr. Casey Babb, thank you so much for joining uh, the podcast, and we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. And thanks to all of our viewers for watching. Thanks, Jonathan.